<clears throat> the Lord's Supper, or communion, has been the subject of much controversy throughout church history. E- even in the New Testament itself, we have seen and you can find disputes in the church over this issue. The Apostle Paul, in his first letter to the church at Corinth, as we saw last year or so when we were working through 1 Corinthians, he reminded the Corinthian Christians of how they should be observing communion, and he tells us that his instructions came directly from Christ himself. But the controversy surrounding the communion table um, didn't end in Corinth. During the Reformation, there was a significant rift that developed between the churches in Germany. For the most part, the churches in Germany were under the leadership of, or at least the influence, of Martin Luther. And the churches in the various cities of Switzerland, this, this rift developed. And in, in Switzerland, they were under the, especially in Zurich, their main influence was another reformer, this one by the name of Ulrich Zwingli. And in 1529, in order to bring these, these Reformation churches of Switzerland together with the like-minded churches of, of Germany, church leaders held a conference at the Marburg Castle there in Germany. And a number of theological issues were discussed at this conference, but the most controversial was that of the Lord's Supper, which was saved for last. Of course, the the reformers disagreed with the, with the Roman Catholic view of transubstantiation, which is the idea that the elements or the substances of the Lord's Supper, the cup and the bread, they literally become the body and blood of Christ. All of the reformers rejected this view, which is still held by the Roman Catholic Church today. Martin Luther called to what he, held to what he called the real presence He believed that the body and blood of Christ was dwelling or existing in, under, and with the elements. Sometimes this view is called consubstantiation, although most Lutherans don't really like that term. But Ulrich Zwingli held to a different view. Later theologians will come to call Zwingli's view the memorial view. He held that the elements of the Lord's Supper are just symbols The bread is a symbol of the Lord's body, and the cup is a symbol of Christ's shed blood for the remission of sins. Well, at this conference, these two great reformers, they could not come to agreement over the Lord's Supper. And at one point during the debate, um, Luther, who always had kind of a, a flair for the dramatic, he grabbed a piece of chalk and he scribbled on a table, or some accounts say that he grabbed a knife and carved into the table, this is my body. And he emphatically declared that we must interpret this phrase literally. The bread is the body of Christ, he said. Zwingli shot back that it all depends on what your definition of is is. I'm paraphrasing. In this case, he said, is means signifies, which allows for a symbolic understanding of the bread. And then Zwingli referred to John 6, 63, where Jesus says, it is the spirit that gives life. The flesh is no help at all. Essentially, Zwingli made the case that communion was merely a memorial meal. 
The focus should be to remember the sacrifice of Christ and nothing more. He was very proud of himself for taking on the great Martin Luther. He boasted that his argument was so good it would break Luther's neck in love. And so they left the Marburg Castle and they went their separate ways and unity over this issue never came to the churches of the Reformation. A few centuries later, debate over the Lord's Supper came up again, this time in Northampton, Massachusetts. In the 1740s, 1750s, the controversy ended in Jonathan Edwards' dismissal from his congregation. Incidentally, Jonathan Edwards' sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, is still read today, even in college classes, maybe even some high school. It's considered to be a, a literary masterpiece. But Edwards' predecessor there, the man he replaced as pastor in Northampton, a man by the name of Solomon Stoddard, which was his own grandfather, he believed, Stoddard believed, that the Lord's Supper should be open to all, anyone who would come to the table. And at one point, he even called it a, a converting ordinance, meaning that in the Lord's Supper, the grace of Christ is made available, so perhaps the unconverted may come to faith by partaking of the bread and cup. Edwards rightly saw this as an unbiblical belief and practice, one which he would not preside over at the church there in Northampton. And that put him at odds with the leadership of his own church, resulting in him ultimately being fired. Well, as Protestant, even Reformation Christians, we see Jesus' claim to be the, the bread of life as a picture, but also as a spiritual reality. And we, see the, we can see the supper as an ordinary means of grace. As Christ said, do this in remembrance of me. But we don't see communion as being efficacious or effective for salvation. Eating the bread and drinking the cup doesn't save you. The bread of the Lord's Supper does not infuse us with grace. But we do believe that Jesus feeds us spiritually in the supper as a renewal of his covenant with us. And the supper also reminds us that Jesus Christ is the bread of life. And so I want, to keep, I want to keep two complementary statements of Jesus Christ in your minds as we work through today's passage from Leviticus chapter 24. Here are those two statements. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And he also said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Keep those two statements in mind and turn, if you would, to Leviticus chapter 24. I'm going to read just verses 1 to 9. Leviticus 24, beginning in verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command the people of Israel to bring to bring you pure oil from beaten olives for the lamp, that a light may be kept burning regularly. Outside the veil of the testimony, in the tent of meeting, Aaron shall arrange it from evening to morning before the Lord regularly. 
It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations. He shall arrange the lamps on the lampstand of pure gold before the Lord regularly. You shall take fine flour and bake twelve loaves from it. Two-tenths of an ephah shall be in each loaf. And you shall set them in two piles, six in a pile, on the table of pure gold before the Lord. And you shall put pure frankincense on each pile, that it may go with the bread as a memorial portion, as a food offering to the Lord. Every Sabbath day Aaron shall arrange it from bef- uh, before the Lord regularly. It is from the people of Israel as a covenant forever. And it shall be for Aaron and his sons, and they shall eat it in a holy place. It is for him a most holy portion out of the Lord's food offerings, a perpetual due. Let's stop and pray here. Father, I pray that you would feed us from your word today. Show us, using the light of the Holy Spirit, show us the truth. Show us Christ today, Lord. Our greatest need is to know Jesus Christ and him crucified. And so, Lord, we pray that we would see Jesus today in this. Speak to us, transform our hearts, that we may become like him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, one of the key themes of the book of Leviticus is the call to holiness. In fact, I've mentioned this before, but the apostle Peter, um, he quoted from Leviticus when he wrote in his epistle, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written here in Leviticus, you shall be holy, for I am holy. In fact, that, that sentence, that statement, it, it almost could be a, a complete application of all of Leviticus. Almost. Because what's missing is the word love. Jesus gives us a better summary of the law when he tells us to love God and love our neighbors. And yet there is still application here for us. See, for much of the book of Leviticus, we've been given these instructions over and over again for holiness, both personal holiness and a, and a corporate or communal holiness. So you are to be holy and we are to be holy as Yahweh, as the Lord is holy. A few weeks ago when, when we um, looked at this in chapter 23, we saw that Israel was to have a, um, if I could put it this way, a sanctified calendar. They were to have feasts and festivals throughout the year that were constant reminders of God's provision for them, especially his provision of redemption and and provision of his his covenant promises, including atonement. So don't forget that the concept of, of Sabbath rest is woven all through their calendar. It was weekly, every Sabbath day, and it was in their festivals. They were to have a Sabbath rest, and it all pointed to Christ. And when we read chapter 24, this right here, kind of out of the blue, like we just did that first part, um, it seems disconnected from the chapters around it, because chapter 25 actually picks back up on the theme of, of Sabbath and redemption. 
So what does this that I just read, what does this have to do with, with the redemption and Sabbath rest that we have in Christ? Well, <clears throat> I ask you to keep in mind those two I am statements of Jesus. And so you might already be making a few connections here. So I would say that this has, this has everything to do with redemption and Sabbath rest. But let, let me give you a couple of, of quick and, and immediate practical things that tie this to the chapters around this passage. Okay? First is this. The people of Israel were to keep uh, the tabernacle stocked with the oil and the flour when they brought their offerings, especially the, the harvest feast, the, the feast of weeks, the feast of trumpets, as we saw last time in chapter 23. They brought these things to the tabernacle, to the sanctuary for worship. So these verses are essentially instructions for the priests of what to do with some of the offerings that the people brought. And then secondly, this serves as a reminder that worship in the tabernacle was not restricted to the, to the times of the feasts and festivals. Rather, it was to be, to, to use words from this passage, it was to be perpetual and regular. Four times in this, he says regularly. In fact, some versions might translate it as continually. Every night, these lamps were to be lit, and every Sabbath day, new fresh loaves of bread were to be brought in. This was to be done perpetually and, and regularly. Church isn't, church isn't only open on Christmas and Easter, right? We go regularly. We go even perpetually. <coughs> Excuse me. And if I can just exhort you right here as you think about these things. Um, I've got a milestone birthday coming up, and so sometimes I feel like I'm getting old. I forget things, right, Kyle? <laughs> Thanks. When you get old, don't stop coming to church. As long as you can, make it your life mission to assemble with the saints on the Lord's Day. And those of you who are younger, Make this a priority for the saints that have gone before you. Um, in fact, I think we should commit to this right now as part of our covenant together. Um, if you can't get here, we will come and get you and make sure that you can be here. This is so important to finishing the race that is set before us continue to gather with the saints perpetually and regularly. But, but back to this. Just, just file that one back there. Notice that four times in these, just these nine verses, we read that word regularly. Three times it's referring to, in the first four verses here, referring to the, to the regular light. Let, let me read verses one to four again. Regular light. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, command the people of Israel to bring you pure oil from beaten olives for the lamp that a light may be kept burning regularly. Outside the veil of the testimony in the tent of meeting, Aaron shall arrange it from the evening to the morning before the Lord regularly. 
It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations. He shall arrange the lamps on the lampstand of pure gold before the Lord regularly. Now, as I said, the tabernacle was open for worship for more than just during the holidays. Yet we should ask if there's, we should ask if there's more here to this than just sort of the we'll leave the light on for you idea. Notice the order of responsibility here. Moses, God's prophet, was to instruct the people to bring olive oil for the lampstand, and then Aaron, the high priest or the chief priest, was to arrange the lamps so that they would burn regularly. It was the responsibility of the people to provide the priest with the necessary supplies in order to do his job. Now, we need to go back just a little bit here um, because we haven't really talked much about the furniture of the tabernacle, especially the the lampstand and then in the next section, the, the table for the bread. In Exodus chapter 25, the Lord instructed Israel to make various pieces of furniture to be used in tabernacle worship. And each of the pieces of furniture held some symbolism. They each illustrated something about God. So turn back to Exodus 25. I want to read this. It's um, like much of the law. It can be, if I dare say it, it can be a little tedious to read. But this is so important for us to kind of get a picture of what's going on here. So Exodus 25, beginning in verse 31. This is part of the law. The Lord says, You shall make a lampstand of pure gold. The lampstand shall be made of hammered work. Its base, its stem, its cups, its calyxes, and its flowers shall be of one piece with it. There shall be six branches going out of its sides, three branches of the lampstand out one side of it, and three branches of the lampstand out the other side of it. Three cups made like almond blossoms, each with a calyx and flower on one branch. And three cups made like almond blossoms, each with a calyx and flower on the other branch. So for the six branches going out of the lampstand. And on the lampstand itself there shall be four cups made like almond blossoms with their calyxes and flowers. And a calyx of one piece uh, with it each under each pair of the six branches going out from the lampstand. Their calyxes and their branches shall be of one piece with it. The whole of it a single piece of hammered work of pure gold. You shall make seven lamps for it, and the lamps shall be set up so as to give light in the space in front of it. Its tongs and their trays shall be of pure gold. It shall be made with all these utensils out of a talent of pure gold. And see that you make them after the pattern for them, which is being shown to you on the mountain. So this this lampstand was one of the items that was placed in the in, in the first room, the, the holy place, in the tent of meeting, in the tabernacle. And the first verse three here in, in Leviticus twenty four, verse three tells us that it is to be placed outside the veil of the testimony. That was the curtain doorway that went into the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant was kept and the chief priest entered in only one day a year, only on the Day of Atonement. So the lamp is set up outside uh, the the curtain there. So, So think for a moment what this command means. Physically speaking, this means that the holy place was lit. There was light 
and therefore access for those priests who went to the Lord on behalf of the people. They didn't have to grope around in the darkness. But we also cannot miss the spiritual implications of this. So, throughout the Bible, um, light is often symbolic of something, right? So, for example, Psalm 27 begins like this. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is my light. Yahweh is my light. Or how about that very familiar Psalm 119.105? Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. So Yahweh himself, the Lord himself, and his word are both called light for his people. But then even more than that, listen, listen carefully to the prophecy of Zechariah chapter 4. I'm going to read verses 1 to 6. Listen to this carefully. This is a prophecy. The angel of the Lord talked with me again and came again and woke me like a man who is awakened out of his sleep. And he said, what do you see? And I said, I see and behold a lampstand all of gold with a bowl on the top of it and seven lamps on it, with seven lips on each of the lamps that are on the top of it. And there are two olive trees by it, one on the right side of the bowl and the other on its left. And I said to the angel who talked to me, What are these, my Lord? And the angel who talked with me answered and said to me, Do you not know what these are? And I said, No, my Lord. Then he said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. See, the oil, or maybe the the trees that produce the olives that produce the oil, keeps the lamps burning. That's the Holy Spirit. So, So let's put all of this imagery here together. The way to God is lit by the word of God, and that illumination is empowered by the Holy Spirit. But now we must consider even the the prophecy of the coming Messiah. In Isaiah chapter 42, verses 6 and 7, it says this, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison to those who sit in darkness. We're not even into the New Testament yet. But consider, how does John open his gospel account? How does John begin the gospel according to John? In, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Remember what Jesus said? I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. That's a lot. Let me say it simply. 
the way to salvation, redemption from your sins, comes through the word in the power of the Holy Spirit. Faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So that 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6 says, For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So much of the, of the call to discipleship that we have been called to, that Christians have been called to, right? So much of the call to discipleship is a call to be a light, to reflect the glory of God in Christ to the nations. Jesus said right at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, verses 14 to 16, he says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people put, uh, light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And like the call to holiness, the call to let your light shine before others is both personal and communal. You do it and we do it. And so we could say in the, in the words of our precious newsboys, shine, make them wonder what you've got. Make them wish that you were, they were not on the outside looking bored. Shine, let it shine before all men. Let them see good works and then let them glorify the Lord. It's very 90s, but that is a great chorus. <laughs> all of this, all of this idea of us being the light, reflecting the light of Jesus Christ, reflecting the light to salvation, all of this makes the warning of Revelation chapter 2, verses 4 and 5 so important for us to pay attention to. Listen to this warning. Jesus says this to the church, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first, Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. There, there are churches out there, even near us, that have had their lampstand, the light, the oil, the Holy Spirit himself removed from their midst. And, and frankly, because of that, because Christ has removed that lampstand, we should be praying that they just close. Stop pretending to be Christians. And here's why. Because they are blind guides at best, groping around in the dark, or at worst, they are actively leading people away from God. And we should heed this warning very carefully for ourselves because they didn't set out to be that and neither have we. But the Lord is with his people and he has lit the way to himself. But before we move on to the bread, we need to see one other connection here in this imagery. If you remember, um, for the entire time between Exodus chapter 19 and Numbers chapter 10, 
So all of the rest of Exodus, Leviticus, the entire book of Leviticus, and all the way up to Numbers chapter 10, the people of Israel were encamped at the foot of Mount Sinai. They're receiving the law from God. So the entirety of Leviticus takes place at Mount Sinai. And much of the law is given for the regular practice of the people of Israel when they move into the promised land. So all of this is, is preparation. And before they leave Mount Sinai, we read this command to the priests to say to the people, um, actually Moses, uh, the Lord speaks to Moses and says this in Numbers chapter 8, verses 1 to 3, he reminds him of all of this. He says, speak to Aaron and say to him, when you set up the lamps, the seven lamps shall, be, shall give light in front of the lampstand. And Aaron, Aaron did so. And he set up his lamps in front of the lampstand as the Lord commanded Moses. So these lights, you have to picture this, these lights give light in front of the lampstand. What else is there in front of the lampstand? The table with bread. Keep that imagery in mind as we discuss the bread, okay? So the lamp is shining so that they can see the bread. Now this is regular bread. Look at verses, let me read again, verses 5 to 9. The instruction is this, you shall take fine flour and bake 12 loaves from it. Two-tenths of an ephah shall be in each loaf, and you shall set them in two piles, six in a pile, on the table of pure gold before the Lord. And you shall put pure frankincense on each pile, that it may go with the bread as a memorial portion, as a food offering to the Lord. Every Sabbath day, Aaron shall arrange it before the Lord regularly. It is uh, from the people of Israel as a covenant forever. And it shall be for Aaron and his sons, and they shall eat it in a holy place. It is for him a most holy portion of the Lord's food offerings, a perpetual due. So the Israelites were not only to provide oil for the lamps, but also this fine flour for the bread. And there are 12 loaves, so representing each of the 12 tribes of Israel. And they were to be baked um, and then set in two rows of six on this gold table. And, and these were, I don't know if you really understand it, these were large loaves of bread. Um, in fact, in one place I saw that they were the equivalent of four quarts of flour in each loaf. Um, and the word for loaf there in verse 5, it's, the Hebrew word is chala. This is chala bread, which you might be familiar with. It's delicious. Um, in Exodus chapter 25, when the Lord gives instructions for the construction of this table that the bread is to be set on, he called the bread the bread of the presence. The bread of the presence. Not Christmas presents, but presence, their presence, right? In front of them, with them. The bread of the presence. So every Sabbath, the priest was to arrange this bread along with the incense as a memorial portion, as a food offering to the Lord. And by presenting fresh loaves every week, the people of Israel were acknowledging that God meets the needs of his people. And like the lampstand, there is some rich symbolism in all of this. In fact, here are three or four truths that the Holy Spirit can help us see here. Okay? Let me give you three or four truths that the Holy Spirit... We can help us see about this. First is this. Verse 8 says that this is a covenant 
forever. And verse 7 calls the bread a memorial portion. Now, it's been a long time, but think back earlier this year when we were in Leviticus chapter 2. Let me read for you just verses 1 to 3. This is the instruction. Leviticus 2 verses 1 to 3 says this, When anyone brings a grain offering as an offering to the Lord, his offering shall be of fine flour. He shall pour oil on it and put frankincense on it and bring it to Aaron's sons, the priests. And he shall take from it a handful of fine flour and oil with all of its frankincense. And the priest shall burn this as a memorial portion on the altar, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. But the rest of the grain offering shall be for Aaron and his sons. It is a most holy part of the food offering. So part of it would be used here, part of the rest of that. This was a a prayer and a promise for the Lord to remember his people. That's why they were doing this. And to remember them forever. It's a perpetual. The bread is is actually an especially appropriate uh, covenant sign of of fellowship and communion. Remember back back when the covenant was first ratified. Um, Exodus 24, verses 9 to 11, says this. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. And under his feet, as it were, were a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God, and they ate, and they drank. This was a covenant meal. The priests ate the bread on behalf of the people. But but under the new covenant, all of God's people, not just the priests, or in fact, Peter tells us that we are a priesthood of believers. All of God's people are invited to eat and drink as a covenant renewal. Consider that new covenant, Jeremiah 31. Behold, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Eating the Lord's Supper together as his people, as Christians, in communion, is a renewal of this covenant. It is an acknowledgement that Jesus, that God promised these things for us. Second, in ancient days, and in some sense even today, the dwelling place of kings would have a table laden with food, right? His court would feast together. This would be a a display of of wealth and and power or or of victory and, and peace. But our God doesn't need bread. Rather, he... He provides for his servants. He he provides for his ministers, here his priests to eat. Surely, 
Surely Jesus understood this when he quoted Deuteronomy to the devil. Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, You are the Son of God. Command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And this brings us really to maybe the most obvious, maybe even the most important truth. The Apostle John, um, he makes a very clear connection um, between the feeding of the 5,000 and Jesus' statement, I am the bread of life. We don't really have the time to read all of this. It's pretty much all of John chapter 6. But Jesus feeds the 5,000 from five loaves and two fishes. And then he goes to the other side of the sea. But this crowd, this great crowd, follows him. And in verse 25, we read this. When they, when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. And then just a few verses later, he says, I am the bread of life. Jesus is the life-giving bread. Jesus is our greatest need. There's, there's so much more that we could say about all of this. Time does not permit me to speak of David and his hungry companions eating this bread. Jesus appealing to that as a defense for the disciples picking grain and eating it on the Sabbath. So just remember this, the bread always points to Christ. Jesus is the bread of life. But we need to tie the bread to the lampstand. We need to tie the lampstand to the table. What's going on here? We need to tie the light of the world to the bread of life. I, I said earlier that the, the lamps give light in front of the curtain that the light shines on the 12 loaves of bread on the table. Think of the, think of the symbolism of this. In fact, that imagery of the light shining on the 12 loaves, one for each tribe of the people of Israel, it's the same imagery as the Aaronic blessing from Numbers chapter 6. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Do you see it? These are both the blessing of God on the people of God, mediated by the priesthood of God. Israel here is basking, is to bask in the light of God's divine presence. Think of it this way. Sabbath by Sabbath, these 12 loaves of bread are renewed in the light of the lampstand. So each Lord's Day, the illuminating oil of the Holy Spirit lights up Christ for us in the Word of God. And so we are able to say, your Word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path, and that path leads where? 
Not just wherever we're each going. That's not the path that we're talking about. The path is to God, to Yahweh. That's what that light is lighting up. That's what Jesus is lighting up. In fact, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This is why, this is why the Christian Sabbath, when we, the Lord's Day, when we gather together on Sundays, it's not a fast, it's a feast. It's a feast on God's rich word that gives us life. Because the light of the world shines his countenance upon us, graciously feeding us the bread of life. Pray with me. Father, help us to see this. Help us to see each Lord's Day when we gather together, when we, when we sit and rest in the finished work of Christ on the cross. Help us to see that Jesus has lit the way for us, that the Holy Spirit is allowing us to see him, giving us the, uh, lighting up the, uh, the way to Christ, to God, to salvation, to redemption, to atonement. When we eat and drink in the, in the bread and the cup, Lord, I pray that we would eat and drink and remember Christ's death on the cross, proclaim his death until he returns. Remind us that he is here to meet our needs, every single one. That our greatest need is to know Christ and him crucified. Remind us of these rich truths, Lord. We are thankful for the bread and the cup. We are thankful for the bread of life that comes only through Jesus Christ. We pray these things in his name. Amen.